Welcome to Season 2 of the Kraken Busters, where we explore the great sea monster crisis of 1987. This is Episode 203, Blood in the Water. I'm Keith Pilly. Before we jump into the recap, and then the meat of the episode, I wanted to respond to some more listener feedback. Listener Kathy from Amarillo asks, What is the deal with the new theme song? I'm glad you asked. It, uh, it, it, honestly, this lets me get something off my chest. So, if you remember from Season 1, the title of this show comes from Woody Guthrie's 1949 song of the same name, written and recorded during the first bloom of success against the sea creatures in the early days of the Dewey administration. And then, of course, for the show, I commissioned Minneapolis musician Aaron Scheel to record a sound-alike cover of it to use his theme music. And he did a pretty good job of that one. Well then, since this season is covering the 80s, and uh, post-punk and new wave music even figures into the narrative later on, uh, and since Joy Division recorded a pretty notorious-slash-niche-beloved cover of the Guthrie song and issued it as a B-side to New Dawn Fades, I wanted to try to get that spirit into the show. Of course, the uh, the licensing for the actual Joy Division song was much more than my little one-horse operation here could cover, so I went back to Aaron and asked him if his band, the Awesome Boys, could take a shot at recording a sound-alike. And, well, uh, what you hear at the start of the show is what I got. It, it doesn't really sound like Joy Division. And, you know, honestly, full disclosure, I am not really speaking to Aaron Scheel anymore. But, you know, you roll with the theme music you got, not the uh, theme music you wish you had. And I guess maybe this has its charms. I don't know. Uh, So that's that. And thanks for the question. If anybody else has one or notices something I've gotten wrong, please let me know. Right on. Okay, then. So, last week we talked more about President Robert Kennedy's response to reports that the government of Iceland might be about to announce a possible resurgence of sea creature attacks in the North Atlantic. Kennedy leaned on the Icelanders to hold off on the report and fretted that this was all some kind of maneuver or trick, uh, maybe the result of action by the Soviets. He also ordered the activation of the secretive military unit Detachment 69, and asked D-69's commander, General Clayton Abernathy, to send a team to Iceland to find out what was really going on. Abernathy then sent a team of naval specialists, led by D-69 team member Javier Delgado, to the scene on board the modified Marine Amphibious Assault Ship USS Flag Island. This week, Delgado and crew get to Iceland and find out if it's all a big trick or not. Javier X. Delgado was a career sailor from San Diego who had carved out a long, strange career in the Navy, rising to the rank of Chief Petty Officer before being seconded to Detachment 69, where, to be clear, rank kind of stopped mattering based on the needs of a given mission. 
Growing up right next to the sprawling naval complex in San Diego, Delgado says that his earliest memories actually include the constant presence of warships moving in and out of the facility to participate in the later years of the sea monster crisis of the 40s and 50s. He had joined the Navy after finishing high school and blazed a long, strange path through the post-war years. As a young enlisted man, he had been on board the USS Bozeman during the U.S.-Soviet standoff in the Kuril Islands as the Japanese Civil War kicked off and nearly took the world over the nuclear brink. He later served on other major blue-water capital ships, but he really made his reputation in the Brownwater Navy in the Philippines during the series of insurrections and proxy wars in the 70s that went with the waxing and waning of Soviet influence in the islands. By the late 70s, he had a reputation as a tough, smart sailor who knew a hell of a lot about the sea, but also knew a hell of a lot about how to manage a tight situation and how to fight. He'd been considering an offer to attend Navy SEAL school for special forces training when he was contacted by Detachment 69. He chose the fearless freaks over the SEALs because the unit's twin reputations for excitement and anarchy appealed to him a lot more than the harsh discipline of the SEALs. Delgado would later refer to the SEALs as, quote, a bunch of crew-cut douches, end quote. Uh, As mentioned last week, Delgado's role in the Fearless Freaks was to serve as the detachment's resident expert on general naval matters, and this was a role he relished. Now, Delgado wasn't on board the Flag Island commander. The ship had a commanding officer in the regular line of naval duty, Commander Vince Bullock. Instead, Delgado was there to command the team of Freaks on board the Flag Island, and to use the ship to suit the team's purposes. By convention, this meant that Commander Bullock was ordered to follow any advice given to him by Delgado, a situation that consistently rankled high-ranking Annapolis graduates. But at least early on, the advice was simple and not particularly grating. Just get to Iceland as fast as possible. And on the mid-afternoon of May 6th, the Flag Island entered its initial search zone southwest of Iceland. Now, last season I made extensive use of testimony from people's accounts given to the Federal Crisis Documentation Project. That's not an option this season, of course, because the FCDP was long gone by the 80s. But, in this case, I'm pleased to report that I was able to conduct a long, good oral history interview with Delgado himself, and I'm able to quote it at length here. Quote, I was nervous about that whole mission. I mean, nothing new there. I used to get nervous about every mission. You don't get nervous about a mission, you wind up dead. But this one. Some of my earliest memories were of my old man coming back into port after what I now know were runs serving on destroyers during Project Mousetrap in maybe 49 or 50. He'd come in pale, a little shaky, and just drink rum for a few hours until the shakes stopped. Most of the time, the old man was a gregarious, happy-go-lucky type, but those sea monsters scared the shit out of him. And nothing scared the shit out of him. So yeah, I was nervous just knowing that there was a possibility. One of the things I loved about serving in the Freaks was the informality, both about rank and about, well, just not bullshitting each other. That's a rare thing in the military. In the mission briefing, General A was really upfront about what was going on. The president wanted us to go and see what the Icelanders were up to, and maybe on the side, make 100% sure that there weren't really any sea monsters in the ocean. 
The general thought the president was being a horse's ass, and I thought so too. If there was even the faintest chance of sea monsters in those waters, then that was the prime focus of the mission, and who gives a shit about what a bunch of pale blonde sons of bitches were up to? That's what the CIA was for, for shit's sake. So, after we got on board the Flag Island, the other freaks and I had about two days to figure things out on the way. We tried to include the ship's skipper, Bullock, in as much of this planning as possible, even if he was always kind of pissy about us. That's okay, really. Bullock was a good ship driver, and he followed orders, uh, even if he was pissy. We can handle pissy. Part of the mission briefing had included the last known whereabouts of those three icehead fishing ships. The way I saw it, once we got within 300 miles of the nearest of those, we needed to get eyes up in the air, all over the place, just to see what we could see. Back in the 40s, when they were looking for sea monsters, they were always talking about what they'd call surface royal. So okay, we, we can look for surface royal. The flag had a bunch of her own helicopter assets, and then three of my team of freaks were qualified pilots with their own birds loaded aboard. Suddenly the air around the flag was just full of helicopters and harriers all radiating outward while I stayed on the ship in the combat information center with Bullock to keep track of the dope that came in. But here's the thing. Back in the late 40s, they were usually in the Central or South Pacific when they were looking for surface royal. That's a nice stretch of ocean, usually. We were in the North Atlantic. Really different ballgame. There wasn't a square foot of surface that wasn't all roiled up, because the whole goddamn thing was a choppy mess, with winds and waves and spray and all the shit that the sea tries to throw at you to make you miserable. I gotta be clear about this. Speaking as an old sailor, the North Atlantic is the absolute anus of the ocean. So I'm there in CIC, listening to each one of the assets report in that they can't see a goddamn thing. Then the weather kid reports that there's a squall blowing in. Great. Although it's the North Atlantic, so big whoop, there's always a squall. It's just, it's one big fucking squall. 20 minutes of the same goddamn reports over and over. Home plate, dragonfly reports nothing but surface churn. Over. Home plate, tomahawk, reports nothing but surface churn. Over. Whole thing's starting to look like a stupid bust, and we're going to need to start thinking about a better way to do this. And then suddenly we get a mayday call from one of the Navy choppers. One of their Seahawks, the one furthest out to the northwest search sector, went down in the storm. The bird had gone down instantly, and the crew was in the water and in a lot of trouble. I didn't even get a chance to order all the birds in the air over there to effect the rescue. The Freaks choppers were on their way immediately, and the other Navy birds were on their way right afterwards. My buddy flying the Freaks attack chopper, and I, I can't use his real name or call sign since his file's still classified, so uh, for this let's call him Hickok. Uh, Hickok had the closest search sector to the chopper that went down, so he got there first. His bird was a single-seater, so he couldn't help get anyone out of the water but he could at least mark their location and keep eyes on them until one of the others with a winch and some seating room got there. At least that was a plan. But then Hickok comes over the radio and just sounds freaked out to his goddamn bones. Home plate, I have eyes on them, but uh, there's something in the water with them, he says, or something really close to that. Looks like long strands of, uh, long strands of something. They're tangled in it, all three of them. Oh shit, this ain't looking good. This ain't looking good at all. Target 1 just started convulsing and stopped moving. Now target 2, shit, all three of them. And then, and I'll tell you what, I'm, I'm never going to forget this. I'm standing there in CIC. I'm already thinking about my old man just from the tone of Hickok's voice. He says, 
Jesus Christ Almighty, those are jellyfish tentacles they're caught in. But I've never seen any jellyfish anywhere that big. Oh, Jesus Christ, it's, it's eating them. It's eating them. Normally, I would have ordered him to open up with everything he had right then and there. But we'd sent all the birds up unarmed to keep them light so that they could search longer. So I told Hickok just to hang tight and keep eyes on the goddamn thing. My mind was racing. There wasn't any doubt. These were fucking sea monsters. Motherfucking sea monsters. I was already starting to figure out what to say in my report back to General A. A giant fucking jellyfish that ate people. Jesus Christ. I'd just been reading that weird novel, Prince Jellyfish, by that guy Thompson, the, uh, the really psychedelic job that he wrote before he ran for Senate, and that name had stuck with me. So in my head, right then, that's what I started calling the big motherfucker, Prince Jellyfish. As I was thinking, Hickok radioed back that it had slipped back under the water after dissolving and eating all three of the Hilo crew members in the water. Of course, right then, I suddenly had bigger problems. Bullock had the Flag Island heading north-northeast at about 20 knots. Then there was a lurch, and we just stopped dead in the water. A couple of guys in CIC got thrown down to the deck, even. I grabbed the bridge phone to ask Bullock what the hell was going on, but he was already calling down. Tentacles, he yelled. Tentacles, sticking up over the deck all the way around. Lots of different sizes, lots of different colors. I knew enough about the outbreak in the 40s to know exactly what was going on. It was one of those old swarm attacks, where a whole mess of lesser creatures, that's the littler guys that are still fucking huge, but they're littler than the really big primary boys, latch onto the hull to immobilize the ship. Usually used to mean that an attack by one of the bigger fuckers was coming. I was tempted to run up to the bridge to help deal with whatever was next, but I figured I was best off staying in CIC for a minute, building up more information on the bigger picture. So back to our tentacle problem. Tarawa-class amphibious assault ships, like most of everything else the Navy had out in the water in the 80s, had ring-of-fire systems, the ring of burners mounted outward along the hull. It was a thing they'd worked up in the 40s as a way to get tentacles off the hull. On a lot of ships, the ring-of-fire system was kind of the last priority for maintenance. It wasn't really a thing you could count on. But since the Flag Island spent a lot of time in port waiting for the freaks to call her up, her ring of fire was at least in pretty good working order. And Bullock had it fired up without waiting for any kind of order from me, or suggestion, whatever. Anyway, the main reason we used a marine amphibious assault ship as our expeditionary base for freaks missions was that they can hold and launch a whole bunch of weird shit. And our missions usually involved a lot of weird shit. One piece of weird shit that we'd loaded on board for this mission was a sweet little assault hovercraft that was armed to the fucking teeth. Theoretically, it was supposed to be for getting a handful of freaks onto a heavily contested beach. But me and, uh, let's call him Coasty, the freak in charge of it, and that's not his real name, but uh, he's still classified, so you know. Anyway, me and Coasty had figured it, it might come in handy on some kind of close-in fight on the open sea. So I called down to the equipment deck and asked Coasty if it was ready to go on a moment's notice. He laughed in my face and said the only thing holding him back was that he needed me to get my sorry ass down there and man a gun tub. I called up to Bullock on the bridge and told him what the plan was. He said he was going to recall all the helos and turn us right the fuck around and get us out of here the second we could get the ship clear. So out we went, me and Coasty, a couple other freaks crewing the weapon stations, and some Flag Island sailors seconded to us to help out. It was a tough launch with all the tentacles lashed up around the Flag Island's hull. But the boys got one of the landing craft launch hatches open, and then it was off to the races. 
Back in the 40s, conventional ship armaments hadn't been too useful against these sea beasties. But like I said, this little fucking hovercraft was just bristling with weapons. All of it the newest, best shit. The medium caliber machine guns weren't too useful, although if you trained one right at the tentacles long enough, you could cut the fucker in half. But the flamethrowers sure were, and guess what I was manning? I had Coasty just run us in a slow circle around the flag island, barbecuing our way along, also just shitting shallow set depth charges out of the back of us as we went. Since we were in a hovercraft, the fuckers in the water could never get a tentacle on us without taking some counterfire. Inside of 20 minutes, we had the ship free, although the whole time we were waiting for an attack from a bigger creature. But it never came. I did keep thinking I could see a goddamn giant shark fan off in the distance, but it never closed. Thank God. Anyway, after two passes, we had the ship clear enough for Bullock to get her moving again. He turned 180 and hauled ass out of the trouble zone. Coasty and me rode herd behind in the hovercraft, still puking out depth charges to cover the escape. And then the ship recovered us after we were about 30 miles clear. And then I had to start thinking about what I was going to tell Washington. End quote. And uh, that actually is it for this week. Next week, Delgado checks back in with Washington, and Kennedy makes some decisions. Thanks, and be well.